Hello, it is editing fell here. As you might note from the date of the what happened on this day, this was recorded several months ago. Rest assured, we are back into the swing of recording and editing and releasing. Thank you all so much for your patience and enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. This week, we're kind of going back to a topic that we touched upon way back when we first started, like episode four, which is about research. But we're not just going to talk about research the way we did it there, which was kind of more of like a theoretical overview of how we would research. But we're going to get into kind of more of the practical applications. How do you like look through historical documents? How do you look through scientific documents? How do you look through something like a grimoire? We'll give you our tips and tricks on how to do that. But before we get into that, I'm going to pass it over to Fel to do our what happened on this day. That's me. <laughs> um, so this is completely unrelated to today's topic. But it is still interesting. And I'm sure this individual did a lot of research. So I guess that's the tie-in. <laughs> uh, Paul Adrian Maurice Dirac, an English theoretical physicist, was born on August 8th, 1902. Known for his work in quantum mechanics and for his theory of the spinning electron. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics alongside physicist Erwin Schrodinger in 1933. Must have done a lot of research. Quantum physics at that time? Yikes. Don't even want to think about it. Okay, so let's maybe just pop right into it. What is research? Why research? And kind of what we're going to go over. So like I said earlier, in our fourth episode, we talked about the importance of research, different sources, and when they're applicable. But despite this constant push to research in the community, I think people tend to overlook the fact that not everybody knows how to research or like how to even go about researching. Have you noticed the same thing? Yeah, to an extent. I feel like there's a really, really big emphasis, particularly in like sort of recon pagan settings to um, sort of do everything according to the book. But there is no book <laughs> and we have we have highly like biased sources. So I think um, sometimes people want to rely on uh, sort of historical background because maybe they don't necessarily have a local community or maybe they don't really have a framework for how to go about things. Phil, do you have any other thoughts? Or... No, I mean, honestly, I think Henny okay. covered it all, really. I was like, I don't have anything to add. Great. I'll take your silence. It's nothing. <laughs> Each of us engage in research in very different contexts. So Phil is a historian, maybe not officially, but certainly by passion. Um, and she's combed through plenty of historical documents to reconstruct or have a better understanding of Hellenism and Hellenic polytheism, which informs her practice along with Pan. I do deep dives into grimoires and manuscripts from the Middle Ages and Renaissance era. We'll learn about the occult and also the craftiness of the cunning folk who did a lot of kind of combining the more ceremonial side with folk magic, which is super interesting. And then, of course, Hanny and I both do scientific research. We read scientific articles, probably more than we would like <laughs> for our jobs and research that way as well. So we're each going to kind of take one of the things that we do and talk about it and go in depth and share our tips and tricks. But let's talk about something we didn't hit on during our fourth episode, which is what counts as research? Like, what do you consider to be, I guess, legitimate research? <laughs> That's not the right term. It's like... But you know what I mean, right? I kind of brought this up because I feel like the word, the more you think about like defining research, the more confusing it is. Because it's like, 
are passion documentaries made on YouTube? Is that research? Is a fictional book, movie, etc. set in a historic time period? Is that a form of research? Because there are definitely things in that book that can inform that are that could be correct and can inform something, but they can also be wildly, wildly inaccurate. I know for me, when I uh, do research for like other things, because I'm also like a writer, if I am researching a particular historic time period, I actually will consume fiction, like modern, both modern fiction and also historic fiction. Because even though it doesn't necessarily contain facts, and especially with modern historic fiction, it can contain inaccuracies. But generally, I will read that stuff like when I'm already in kind of a place where I'm able to identify inaccuracies. And I take it more as kind of like informing, I don't want to say informing the vibe, but informing a certain perspective, I guess, is, is what I would say with that. I don't know if I would even count that as research. I feel like that research doesn't really fit that definition but I'm not sure what what are your guys thoughts um I think I definitely have a more sort of classical view on it whereas I tend to think of academic papers things that have been published you know you know books but I think that probably comes from originally coming from a kind of more recon background where there is more of an emphasis on the historical facts um, and also being interested in things like herbalism where those are things that can kind of be materially tested um I think it would be quite different based on what your practice is and so it's not really fair to give a kind of blanket statement and say oh this isn't valid research because some people are not going to have the same access to sources than others right I think when it comes to like witchcraft especially modern witchcraft research is so much more fluid right because like there are so many modern witchy books some of them are beginners and it's like a lot of them can contain information that I think is wrong or I don't agree with but it's still like research and some people you know a lot of fiction media has actually informed modern witchcraft so in certain ways that can be a weird type of research that's like definitely not academic yeah it's just non-traditional I guess Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind that research can be non-traditional in the sense of not being an academic paper or going back to like the, you know, original manuscript that's in Latin that nobody can actually read, at least no one amongst (laughs) the general populace. So I do think that like YouTube videos, fictional movies, or kind of these non-traditional like sources of information can be really valuable in informing like a perspective maybe, and also information to an extent. Like, I love watching documentaries. Do they give you the full scope of information? Probably not. But like you can do additional research, right, to try and figure out more. A lot of those kind of things can act as like an initial informing medium from which you jump off to like learn more if you want to, like if you care enough, if you're passionate about the subject. I think um, another thing to mention is also it can be kind of a jumping off point. And and if you're looking for sort of those initial sources, like if you're looking for a documentary or maybe you're reading a, a witchcraft book, it can be useful to look for their bibliography. So it's, it's almost like a, a jumping off point into further research. My favorite kind of historic fiction includes bibliographies. <laughs> I've never come across a historical fiction book that has a bibliography. Really? It's actually, it's starting to become a lot more common now. The last few that I've read that have all come out in the past, like, three or four years all have bibliographies or a lot of them have big bibliographies all right nice i'm clearly reading the wrong historical fiction books (laughs) 
Okay, speaking about historical sources, I'm going to pass over to Phil, and Hanny, you would do some of this too with your practice, so if you want to pop in, you guys can talk together. Talk about how you deconstruct historical documents, and then how you maybe pull practical things from there that you incorporate into your own practices. Yeah. Um, the first step is to cry. <laughs> That's not the first step. <laughs> I'm going to be speaking very generally here, but just know that like, I am speaking from like a Hellenic polytheist perspective, which means that I have the entire field of classics to choose from. Pagan studies is a thing, so it's not just Hellenic polytheism. But anyway, so the first thing that I do is I identify literature that has already been written about this subject and then I will kind of like read through uh usually I don't start with books I mean there's sometimes are books that are written about books usually it's essays but I will look at like essays that are written about like the Iliad for example which starts to give me ideas of what to look for and then the second thing I do is I tend to poll people like ask around your community or even ask around online like if you google like what copy of the Iliad is best you're going to get like a ton of opinions and choosing translation and publication is actually pretty important you don't always have the luxury of having a selection especially when it comes to translations I would first of all recommend getting a copy that has footnotes sometimes bookstores don't like to sell those because like they're not as pretty but like you're gonna want one with footnotes you're gonna want that context (laughs) um you know you didn't grow up in homeric age Greece you're gonna need some uh especially since the Iliad and the Odyssey are not really like fully complete Complete. A lot of people think that the Iliad ends with the Trojan horse. It doesn't. That's a whole other topic for another day. But check out literature on something. Check out what translation people seem to recommend. People usually give pros and cons. You can decide if you care more about it feeling epic or if you care more about it being literally accurate word for word for the translation. The other thing is to check the publication and the translation date. Again, you don't always get this luxury, but when you do, it is generally, in my opinion, good to stay away from translations or publications that are prior the mid-20th century. Now, this is obviously a blanket statement, but oftentimes when you get pre-20th century, especially in like classics, there was like a huge shift in the classics field in terms of perspectives on books at that time or perspectives on classical literature and anything prior to that can like have a lot of like Christian influence, first of all. Um, And second of all, just like weird Victorian and Edwardian opinions on things (laughs) that they insert into the translation and you, you know, not having the side by side or not knowing the original Greek will not be able to necessarily identify what is an author insert. Um, I'm specifically thinking of two individuals. Uh, One is Thomas Taylor. He writes beautiful translations. If you've ever seen a translation of the Orphic Hymns, it is probably Thomas Taylor. And I regret to inform you (laughs) that they are very inaccurate to what the actual Greek is saying. Beautiful. Um, And I actually use Thomas Taylor's work in my practice. So like sometimes I will actually eschew the more historical for the more poetic, but it's wildly inaccurate and then also samuel butler who's one of the most popular translations of the iliad he romanized everything and had some pretty strange (laughs) thoughts uh that he inserted into his footnotes so i think for me because i'm not a historian it's very helpful for me to go through documents that have been written by historians that are sort of summaries and reviews so um books by people like daniel ogden and Lindsay watson for example are very helpful because Rather than diving straight into those primary sources, which can be overwhelming, 
Um, and you know, you, as you, as Fel says, you may not have access to all of the translations or you may not really have the necessary context. Those can kind of contextualize things for you first. Then you can go into those primary sources and sort of see what they're talking about and maybe get a, a range of perspectives to inform your own. Because it's quite difficult, I think, as a non-historian to sort of assess these things. You don't know maybe what all the archaeological terms mean. You don't know um, what the ling- linguistics are. So it's just useful to get a sort of professional opinion, if you like. Give a little transparency to my own background. I work in 18th century history. can read 18th... 18- like, I can identify Thomas Taylor's stuff because I, you know, he's in that era. But I am not trained at all in reading, like, classics. So, yeah, ne- never fear relying on other people's work. And also, if you are part of a Discord community, put feelers out there. Like, people have opinions, often very strong ones, and they can be very insightful to hear. And so, once you get your copy of whatever it is, I actually recommend that you get a physical copy. I know that's not always possible, but with physical copies, there is something to the idea of the brain retaining more information when you're, like, physically writing in something. I am going to tell you to write in your book. People can, my sister would be crying right now, but, like, whatever. I do it. You know, get a pencil, get some stickies, get some highlighters. Uh, Talking to the text is your best friend when it comes to deconstructing these sort of historical documents. You know, my Iliad copy has tons of helpful definitions, some uh, sassy remarks, and several memes that I drew in the corners. It also just makes the experience a lot more fun, you know, like the Iliad. It's beautiful, but it's also very dry at times, especially like I don't care at all about battles. Nothing you can say to me is going to make me care about war and battles. So it made it a lot more entertaining to kind of like talk back to the text in that regard. And just know that you're probably going to have to reread it. I mean, that's kind of the purpose of talking to the text is so when you reread it, you can kind of see, you know, what you highlighted. If something you thought was beautiful, if something you thought was insightful. And especially with texts like the Iliad and the Odyssey, they were actually used in divination. Um, a lot, actually. And there's, you know, no saying that you can't use other historical texts in divination either. I've used Orphic hymns, Homeric hymns, things like that in divination. In terms of integrating them into your practice, that is honestly a lot more difficult. There's probably not that I'm actually going to take from the Iliad and put into my practice. I feel like that'd be kind of weird. I don't have access to a hundred cows that I can sacrifice at any given moment. I, you know, I use the Iliad for divination, primarily the Iliad and the Odyssey for divination. The Homeric hymns are a little bit, hymns are obviously a lot more easier to integrate in your practice because you're reciting them. I did make notes in the Iliad of certain prayers. Like I will sometimes recite prayers that are mentioned in texts, as well as kind of like the general gist of something, like the process of how they, you know, went about contacting ghosts, how like in the Odyssey, or yeah, the Odyssey, uh, when Odysseus contacts ghosts, like the sort of what you can pull, what he does, um, or you can pull the way that's the steps that someone takes where they say, oh, I washed my hands in the sea and then I burnt barley over something. And then I said this prayer to Apollo and you can kind of take the structure from that. Don't ask me about deconstructing philosophy texts because I don't know and I will never know. And that's fine. <laughs> Annie, how do you pull things into your practice? For me, it tends to be obviously the hymns are very, very standard in Hellenic polytheism. You kind of can't go without them. For me, it tends to be more challenging assumptions. So, for example, looking at historical sources, archaeological sources to assess at the level of syncretism, for example. So what what's the archaeological evidence to suggest that um, Hecate and Selene are syncretized? And, you know, where does this apply to? 
because I think sometimes the modern discussion is biased towards one perspective. So it's useful for me to go back to the historical evidence and see, okay, how does my personal experience line up with um, the current assumptions? Is there evidence in history to back up something else, you know? And it's kind of nice to have that dialogue, even though the sources for everything are not always available. When I made my uh, three-part series on Hecate, people loved to tell me in the comments, they were like, yeah, you're showing it to them, Wiccans. I don't, they were like really hung up on Wiccans in particular. I was like, okay, you all need to calm down. And I think sometimes people get hung up on historic sources. It's like, just because something is historically either disproven, but um, what is disproving even at? I don't think that, like, I don't know. It's like, just because something is like shown, like the Hecate's Dapnon, for example, that is such a point of contention. And it's like, just because there's like weird kind of ambiguous evidence doesn't mean that you can't do something. And like, I think it's totally fine to take ambiguous evidence and be like, that resonates with me and adopt it into your practice. See what resonates with you, which is why I think talking to the text is important. Yes. Also, I forgot to say, um, things like pulling from the PGM, also very, very useful, important, and other archaeological sort of examples of maybe not curse tablets necessarily, but um, that kind of thing um, can be really useful inspiration and can also give you some insight into kind of where someone was coming from when they were approaching their practice. I think the beauty of the PGM is that you really get like some insight into what people considered important, like the spells that are in there. It's just, it's funny. Like going through the PGM is a wild ride. If you haven't done it, you totally should. It's great. How to attract um, a woman, I mean, how to attract a woman, how to attract a woman. <laughs> They're like, it's like 90% love spells. <laughs> um, I think you bring up a really good point about like a text being older or like more historical does not mean that it's better necessarily, especially when we think about the fact that so many texts have been bastardized, either changed because of like, trying to push some kind of agenda or like when the church was taking over there was a huge push and a lot of things were considered heresy like i'll talk about this later but the swarm book of honorius actually came about because of such of like such a persecution and so a lot of like the historical books in that case aren't necessarily accurate and so it's like you have to be a little bit critical i think when people start talking about like oh the book is older it's totally the better thing to go through and it's like okay maybe like let's go and let's go look at it and like read it ourselves right yeah a lot of um the people in the quote-unquote library of alexandria i'm putting that in quotes because if the library what the library of alexandria actually was is very complicated they actually would change text they changed a lot of the iliad and the odyssey i mean they changed a lot of like other homeric canon as well and they found evidence of them like scratching things out in papyri i was like oh gosh that just like stresses me out i can't even imagine i'll just be like i'm gonna alter this text and they were just writing memes in the margins like you were doing (laughs) yeah just like me (laughs) see at least i'm not like you know i didn't copy this by hand and i'm changing it that would be kind of funny though i would have made a good monk you should go into it's your new calling (laughs) yeah bye guys (laughs) Random aside, though, is everybody here team writing your books, highlight and everything, or is that just spell? That's me. I'm very team writing your books. Um, I use a Kindle, actually, or if I'm reading a scientific paper or a, a historical document, I'll usually be reading it on my computer because I'll be using JSTOR or something. So um, I tend to make notes on paper, just uh, like write down, but obviously will not write on my Kindle. Yeah, I make notes in my books usually because 
I just like being able to like reference it, especially if it's something that's like more academic in nature. Like literally all the all of the grimoire translations. There's like footnotes, and I'm like referred to page X for like this footnote. Where I have my own, I'm like, oh, this is weird. Like check this other text because I think I saw something similar here. But I'm also the same with Hanny. Like I have stacks of notebooks, too many full of notes. Um, from my reading. Okay, so I'm now going to talk about my favorite thing in the world, which are grimoires. <laughs> so the traditional grimoire traditions, which we lovingly termed a grim trad, they can be really complex. It can be really overwhelming when you first get into it. And we all know that. So we're all here to help each other. The most well-known grimoire that you're probably familiar with that you've heard of is the Lesser Key of Solomon, one of five manuscripts attributed to the king to King Solomon. But there are so many more that you can study and look at. There is an important distinction, though, in the grimoire tradition, which is the subtle shift from a classical grimoire, which is usually really, really heavy on spirit work, um, so conjuring spirits, and then that's also like more ceremonial in nature, to that of the cunning folk. So cunning folk grimoires, like the ones from Arthur Gauntlet, ones from Mary Parrish, and Stephen Skinner in particular uh, published a grimoire of the cunning man or something along those lines, and the title is not coming to me at the moment which is very much so kind of this like shift from the ceremonial side to a more folk-based tradition with slight ceremonial influences. But I'll get into that later. So how do you go about researching a grimoire? One of the most overwhelming parts of grimoire magic is how many manuscripts there are. There are so many and you will be on a podcast and you'll hear people say like, so manuscript 3324 or 1189. And you're just like, I have no idea what any of these stand for. But Luckily for you, <laughs> and the manuscripts are in English, which also makes it very difficult to like then read. But luckily for you, there have been a lot of people in the recent, like probably last five years or so, who have intentionally translated these grimoires for us. It's become a really popular thing. So specifically, um, Joseph Peterson has translated many grimoires. He translated the Lesser Key of Solomon. Um, he recently translated the um, Lucidarium Necromantiae, which is a precursor to the Heptameron. And then he also did a translation of the Heptameron himself. I think he also translated the Book of Oberon, um, and there's a couple of others. And then Stephen Skinner has also done plenty of translations. If you're curious about Solomonic magic, if you're curious about the Lemegaton, the five texts that are involved there, he is your go-to guy. He has done all the translations for that. He's brilliant. A lot of respect for him. And then there's plenty of others who have also engaged in this. So, for instance, Adley Nichols is somebody who's very familiar with the um, Heptameron. If you're curious about astrological magic, there's people who are like Christopher Warnock, who is very well specialized in the Picatrix and astrology, so you can go to them as well. If you're ever curious about a particular grimoire, just type it in, and then somebody will definitely pop up on Google. (laughs) And if there's a translation, they'll probably also come up. But how do you start? So honestly, the first thing to do is just to read it. When people first enter the grimoire tradition, I think they're surprised by how short the grimoires can be. Like the Heptameron is very short. And it's really mostly to say like, here, you need to write this down first. So the the hour of the day, and then it gives you on Sunday, the hours of the day are list a whole bunch of names, and then it just can, kind of continues. So that's kind of like a general framework of the grimoires. They give you kind of a step-by-step ritual guide of how to go about something. And when you read it, the goal you should have in mind kind of when you're doing this is just to become familiar with the manuscript. So if there are multiple versions, for example, the Heptameron has multiple versions, the first being the fourth book of occult philosophy, which is attributed to Agrippa, pseudo-Agrippa, technically. And then again, the more recent re- recent translation by Peterson in his new book. Read them all if you can, but note the differences. Just kind of like Phil said, 
translations that occurred kind of pre-20th century or even pre the last like 10 years or so aren't necessarily the best. For instance, Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy, you have the Donald Tyson version, then you have the new Eric Perdue version that came out that corrected some of the things in the Tyson version and also just made it generally a little bit more understandable. So if you can get both copies, it's nice to have them both and compare between them, but that's not always possible. And honestly, they're usually not different enough that if you only have one, you're going to like be screwed or anything. So if you only have one, it's totally fine. Read them all if you can. Know the differences. Draw out the sigils of the angels or the demons or whatever you're looking at. I generally find doing this can kind of help you get a sense of maybe the being that you might be working with. Setting them, meditating on them, it can really help you get a sense of the relationship you might relationship you might have with the spirit Um, and then compare them across the manuscripts because sometimes they change across manuscripts which is always fun to try and figure out why is something missing are they different one of the big things recently in Peterson's new book that he came across was that the elucidarium actually had Michael associated with Mercury and Raphael associated with the sun which is kind of backwards from what you would typically expect but those kind of differences can be seen from older texts to maybe newer translations. And then it's just a matter of why did they change? Usually it's attributed to so-and-so as a student of so-and-so who believed it was one way. So usually not very deep. I had a question for you as well. So yeah. if you were just, just starting off in Grimtrad, is there a particular Grimoire which is kind of a beginner-friendly place to start? So I'm going to say it depends on your comfort level and what you want to do. So... People always like to start with the Goetia. I don't know why. <laughs> I think it's like one of the most inaccessible grimoires. And it's also honestly one of the more dangerous ones. People like to pretend it's not, but it totally is. The nice thing about the Goetia is that the Key of Solomon, its framework is mo- one of the more complete ones. And so you're given instructions on how to make pretty much all your tools, the timings that you need to do it. And the conjuration is also generally pretty structured. So if you need a framework, like it's a good place to start, but also keep in mind that the Solomonic kind of framework that's provided within the key can apply to a lot of the other Solomonic texts. So like the Ars Almadel is a Solomonic text that deals primarily with angels. So you don't have to start with demons if you don't want to. And then you have things like the Ars Notoria, which is also part of the Solomonic text. It's at the end of the end of the Lamegaton, but it's really a very different grimoire in that it's, re- it's about prayers and recitations and meditation on images like the Note versus the typical spirit conjuration. The grimoire that I started with, and the one that I actually think is probably the most accessible, is the Arbitel. A lot of people don't like the Arbitel because it is a very Christian-centric grimoire, like very Christian-centric, very heavy in that frame. But it's one of the easiest. You don't really need any super extensive tools. You don't need to like wait a year to make everything. It's mostly just prayers and then having the ability to scry. And that's like the extent. The aphorisms are essentially guidelines for how one should live their life if they are to perform this work. And it's good to read through them. Try to adhere to them as much as you can. But... Again, this was written, you know, back, I think that was in the 14th, 15th century, maybe a little bit earlier. Those ideas don't fully translate to modern day, but I digress. That's where I started. The Olympic spirits are generally, in my experience, very friendly. You're not going to get, like, smited. You won't get smited with any of the grimoires. But it's just, like, it's a good starting point, I think. Um, Really accessible, too. From there, kind of go with whatever floats your boat. By that point, you'll have an idea of how it works. You'll probably be exposed to things like... uh. The Trithemius method, like drawing spirits into crystals, you can go down that route, and that can be applied in lots of different ways. But yeah, the Arbitel is where I started, where I would recommend people starting. It's really accessible. It's kind of short, and the Olympic spirits are pretty chill. So good place to start there. 
That was a long answer to your question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> After you you read the manuscript, great. We looked at maybe the different translations of it, and we've seen differences. We've kind of figured out maybe why the differences occurred. So the next thing you can do is look at the predecessor manuscript if there is one. So what's funny is that a really common complaint in the grimoire community is that they're not complete. So people will like read through it and be like, okay, if I'm actually going to pull this and like put it in my, into my practice, like what do I do? Like where do I start? How, like what do I need to actually do to make this work? And the grimoires can seem really incomplete, but it's important to like remember that at the time that the grimoires became really popular in like the 14th to the 18th century, there was kind of this understanding that like you as a magician already had a knowledge of like the basics that every grimoire magician like would need to know. The basic prayers, you knew how to make a circle, you knew that like obviously you needed protection, you needed to write the divine names on the ground in some form, like you probably needed to have a dagger or a knife to control the spirits, like whatever. It's kind of those things are just like generally accepted. You can often find those instructions in earlier um, documents. So for instance, the predecessor to the lesser key of Solomon is a testament of Solomon. And there's a lot more instructionals, although it's told really in more of a story. So the testament of Solomon is basically like the story of how Solomon controlled the demons to help him build the temple. But in doing so, there's some ritual framework in there that's not found in the lesser key that can offer some insight. And then similarly with the Elucidarium, which is the predecessor to the Heptameron, which is like equivalent to the fourth book of occult philosophy, there's also some additional changes and alterations and additions to the ritual that you don't find in the initial text that offer some clarification. Consider the history. I think this is the case for pretty much everything. Like consider the, the historical context of the grimoire so it's important to have an idea of the time period it was written in and then the circumstances that might have led to its creation or maybe why certain things were split out the way they were why more of an emphasis was put on to maybe one particular angel or one particular practice than another so for instance the sworn book of Honorius, which is also known as liber juratus in the prologue of that grimoire it actually claims that the book was compiled to help preserve the core teachings of sacred magic in the face of intense persecution by church officials. Now, given the age of the manuscript, um, this persecution, it's thought that this persecution is in reference to the actions of Pope John the 22nd, who at the time had passed really strict anti-witchcraft and anti-sorcery laws. And so essentially you had members of the clergy who practiced magic that were like, we don't want this to be burned and like gotten rid of. And so they essentially compiled all of their knowledge into this book and then they hid it until we found it later and we translated it. This is also interesting because later grimoires, so kind of toward the later end of things, of the cunning folk actually tend to pull from a lot of the earlier grimoires. Generally, the way they were passed around is from magician to magician. It wasn't something where it was like in a library and anybody could go get access to it. And so what you'll see in a lot of the cunning folk grimoires is they'll have like passages from the kind of classical grimoires that we think of, the Key of Solomon, the Almodel, the Grimoire of St. Cyprian, all of that. So for instance, actually, the grimoire of Arthur Gauntlet, who was a cunning man, the very first few pages of his grimoire, which is translated by David Rankin, actually have the rules for working with St. Cyprian, which are taken almost directly from the grimoire of St. Cyprian. And then even in the back, he has references to the Heptameron with the sigils of the angels of the planetary days and hours. Hours. And then there's also some references to the Lomegaton as well. They kind of build on each other and you'll find, especially in the Cunning Folk Grimoires, it's really fun because there's this like mishmash of like ceremonial magic. Like Arthur Gauntlet's Grimoire is so funny if you read the whole thing because you see like it starts off very ceremonial and then toward the end he's like writing spells for how to get a bunch of apples and like how to fuck a woman. And it's just like... <laughs> 
okay. <laughs> There's such a variety kind of between like how it, like it's really where things change. It's almost like he was like, Sarah Mario then got a hold of the PGM and was like, let me just copy down all the spells. And then the big thing with the Grimtrap tradition is like practice. These are, these are working books of magicians. So they're fun to read and they can be entertaining. And the his, like the history behind Grimoires is so incredibly fascinating. But ultimately, they are the working books of magicians. They were meant to be a guide for a new magician from their predecessor. And so the best way you will understand a grimoire is if you work it. And that's going to be complicated. It's not the easiest thing. Like, I, it sounds so simple. I'm like, yeah, work a grimoire. Okay, I get that it's complicated. Um, like, I've had to go through it. Everybody who's worked a grimoire has. Like, the preparation, especially if you're doing, like, the Key of Solomon, making all the tools can take months, if not even a year, to make them properly. But, like, working it is really important. And so it's important to take that time. Like, there's no rush. These books have been around for decades. They will still be around, especially with like digitization and the kind of boom in publishing of grimoires. So you have no rush, but definitely take your time and work to put it into practice. That's the most important part. I do have a question for you both, though. I don't know how familiar you are with the Grimtrap tradition, although I probably ranted to you about this before. <laughs> but one of the common debates within the grimoire term, like, community is how closely you need to stick to the book. So the book gives you instructions. But how closely do you actually need to adhere to them? What do you think? I should probably preface this by saying that I'm really not super familiar with grimoires, other than those that have been written more recently. So like um, Jack Grail, for example, has a couple of more recent ones which I've used. Um, but I would say I think it's useful to always learn a rule before you break it, if that makes sense. So I think um, going through it by the book for the first time always seems to make sense so you can test those boundaries. Do you have thoughts on that? Oh, gosh, I don't. Um, I this is part of the reason like I don't do grimoire and like I look at the PGM and I go that's pretty cool and I don't do anything because I'm just like kind of terrified of doing something wrong I guess especially like the PGM some of those are like freaking wild there was drama a little while back in the Hellenic polytheist community at least in certain circles of someone who was Gnostic who did a PGM spell and then broke one of the things that it told like they did something that they weren't supposed to do like the spell specifically mentioned and then crazy things happened to them and then they were they took it out on the community for some weird reason I just don't fuck with it I guess I like reading them but I just have never felt like comfortable incorporating them into my practice that's fair yeah so this is like you will see the grim chad community fight over this constantly it's a never-ending debate how important is it to follow the instructions of the grimoire to the nail? Do you really need to get the blood of the black cat and the juice of hemlock for the black-handled knife um, and the key of Solomon? How do you go about getting butterfly blood for an ink in the sixth and seventh book of Moses? And where on earth are you going to find a virgin spun thread? So it's up to you really to decide how closely you want to follow the grimoires. I'm on the team of do it as closely to the book as you possibly can because you never know what will happen if you don't. On the other side of that, a lot of people say that you can just substitute, right? And you can substitute and be totally fine. Plenty of people do this. It works for a lot of individuals. But the key thing about substitutions is that you have to make them with really great care. So for instance, if you want to substitute hemlock for another herb when you're going to dip a black-handled knife into it to consecrate it, it's important to make note of the fact that hemlock is there for its deterring qualities. And so if you choose an herb with different planetary attributes, then it's not going to bring about the same purpose. Um, I know Sam Block, who is an individual who runs a digital ambler blog, 
he decided to substitute the blood of the black cat for a combination of things. So he took, again, the black cat is, is in a reference to the turning qualities of the animal. And so he took like the fur of a black cat and then he incorporated a lot of other like Saturnian herbs and ingredients to kind of make up for it, not like having the exact blood. So it is possible to substitute, but like if you're taking something that's so strong, like it's such a strong part of the ritual out, it's important to really build upon those correspondences because if you take them out, you're like losing part of the efficacy, which is not helpful in that case, especially if the knife is intended to like help you control the spirits. They're not going to listen to you if it's missing the Saturnian qualities. The substitutions can occur, but it's important to do them carefully. And if you ever are curious about maybe what you can and can't substitute, that's a matter of talking to the people in the community and being like, what did you do? What did you do? And seeing how people have maybe got around some of the more dangerous or unethical manners of getting a particular ingredient. Okay, so my last piece of advice is honestly just to share your experience and ask questions. Everybody in the Grimtag community knows that it's complicated. We all know that it's weird. And like getting to the manuscripts and going back to the original forms. And like if you aren't versed in Latin or Greek or Hebrew, it can be really overwhelming and it can be really frustrating to try and read them. I'm lucky to have wonderful friends who do translations for me. which is great. And my terrible Latin skills go get me at least a little bit. There are plenty of people in the community who are well-versed in being able to do these translations and will happily help you. And they have their own notes and we all have our own experiences and how we've gone about things. And it can also be really validating to talk to another practitioner and be like, when I did this, this happened. They're like, yeah, same. And you're like, great, I did it right. (laughs) You know? So talk to people in your community. That's one of the best things you can do in the Grimstrad tradition. So if you are curious about the Grimoire tradition and maybe you don't necessarily want to practice it, there are a couple of resources you can look into to just get like an idea of the history. One is a book by Owen Davies called Grimoire's A History of Magic. And then it is a book that has fabulous background. There's also a book called Magic in Medieval Manuscripts by Sophie Page, which also has really interesting insight into the manuscripts that we talk about and that commonly come up in the Grimoire tradition. And then there's also a website called Esoteric Archives that is run by Joseph Peterson, and he has PDFs of many of these grimoires that are available for free on the website that you can look at. Finally, Dr. Justin Sledge is a historian who has a YouTube channel called Esoterico full of lots of historical information, a wonderfully brilliant man. And if you ever are curious about a lot of ceremonial aspects or like grimoires, he has a lot of that background on his channel that's really fabulous, along with bibliographies that you can browse through. But that's it for grimoires. Also, we have a friend named Lewis who's in our Discord who recently published um, a piece that he worked on where he talked about Latin scripture and he did some translations. It's a brilliant piece of work, really well worth the read, kind of learning how to look at a manuscript or look at like Latin scriptures and understand like the syntax and the grammar behind them and how to read them and use them. It is linked in our Discord. Hanny, what channel is it in? I don't remember. Uh, I think it's the Historical Perspectives channel. It's pinned in there. Okay, there Thanks, you go. Maria. Okay, science. It's your turn, Hanny. I thought because this is a science and spirituality podcast, it would be helpful to give you some tips on how to deconstruct a scientific paper because often we have things in our episode notes which might be a little bit difficult to, to approach if you're not from a scientific background. So before we get into that, I want to ask Phil, as a non-scientist or a scientist, I have I've put in my notes. Um, what are some of the challenges you feel that you face when you're reading a scientific document? I don't know half of what anyone is saying. I don't know the terms. I don't have the context. Like, especially scientific articles that are, like, written for scientists. 
I'm just like, I don't know what the heck <laughs> that is. <laughs> That's really what it is. It's just like not knowing the terms. And I think partly because a lot of, I mean, scientific articles are written with flat emotion because that's how they should probably be written. But that makes it even harder for me as someone who is a non-scientist who needs to rely on cues that I'm like, I don't know how I'm supposed, like, what does this information mean? How am I supposed to feel about this information? Is it groundbreaking? Yeah, so that's the main thing that's difficult for me. Yeah, those are, those are really, really good points. Hopefully um, this kind of section will kind of help to uh, break this down a little bit and make it a bit easier for people who also have those same challenges. So if you're not already familiar, most scientific papers are broken down into kind of standardized sections. It can vary a bit per journal, but it's usually the abstract, which is a short summary of the paper and its findings, an introduction, which gives you the background and rationale for the paper, the materials and methods, which is basically the nitty gritty of how you do a study. So it's how it's designed and conducted. And this is, I think, where a lot of people get bogged down because, um, as Fel mentioned, there's lots of jargon in there. The results section obviously describes the study outcomes and the results. And in particular, it's accompanied by essential figures. So these are graphs, charts, tables, that kind of things. These are um, things where you can look at the data for yourself to make a decision. And then finally, at the end, we have the discussion, which is where the authors bring everything together into a kind of narrative thread. So if you're looking for how the authors felt about something that, like Fel mentioned, they're often not written with a lot of emotion, that is probably where you want to look. So obviously, the first place you want to start is the abstract to get a sense of what the paper is about. However, this is also where the scientists tend to make their grandest claims. So you should never, ever make a conclusion just based off an abstract. You, you need to kind of dig deeper to understand if those claims can be substantiated. So I don't know if Astor will agree with this, but I think when you're reading a paper, you want to spend the majority of the time on the materials and methods and also the results section. Would you agree with that? I agree. <laughs> yeah. So the, the key things to consider in the materials and methods, um, the first one is the experimental design. So really what to keep in mind the entire time is what question are they actually asking? What, you know, what are they trying to answer in this study? What hypothesis are they trying to test? And keep that in the back of your mind throughout the whole paper because that's really what you're testing everything else against. Um, is it a realistic? Thing? For a second. If you're looking for the hypothesis or the question that you're trying to ask, they almost always state it at the end of their introduction. Like almost always. It's like this paper is intended to show blah blah blah. And like that is their question. So you can usually find that at the end of the introduction if you're not sure right away. Yes, that's a really, really good point. You should also think about whether it's a realistic hypothesis, like how how broad is this scope? Can, can you test something? In, in that way. Um, and yeah, just keep it in the back of your mind throughout the whole paper. You'll also want to pay attention to the experimental design and the controls. So what are the authors comparing to? What, what does a positive result in this setting look like? What does a negative result look like? Do they have a placebo on? You know, do they have a negative control so you can actually see what no result would look like? Um, you need to be able to make those comparisons in order to understand what the result looks like. And finally, it's fine to not be familiar with every technique used. Like, there's going to be a lot of jargon. You're probably not going to be an expert in every single field. So it's okay if you don't understand what fluorescent resonant electron transfer is. <laughs> um, you can look it up. But also, you should look at other papers in the field to see if they're using similar techniques to see kind of how standard it is. Is there anything you have to add to that, Astra? No, I think that's good. I, it can definitely be overwhelming, the jargon. And if you need help with it, a lot of times... Like, there are things even as a scientist, like, I don't. People say in a paper and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Never heard of that in my life. YouTube is a really great resource. There's a lot of people who teach, like, on YouTube and they have, like, shorts that are 15 minutes long or something that walk you through the basics of an assay. Like, if you really do want to understand it, 
um, that's a really good place to start. Right. So once you've kind of got your head on straight about what the paper is actually trying to achieve and how they're going about it, you need to look at the results section. So again, the entire time you need to keep the, the hypothesis in mind and the controls in mind. What are they asking? Do the choices of experiment answer their question adequately? And what does a positive and negative result look like? What the authors say, like what they've written in the results section, and what the data say might be two different things. So as a general rule, when you're reading the results, use the text as a guide, but focus most of your attention on the figures because it's actually the data which is going to inform your decision. Um, you need to look at whether there's a trend and what that tells you about the experimental outcome, what the distribution of the data are like. So sneaky authors are going to do things like hide distributions behind bar plots. <laughs> so ideally, you want to see how the data are distributed, because if they're very variable, that might be a problem. Um, and also uh, statistics. So I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty of statistics, and I think you'll all be breathing a sigh of relief. To give you a short explanation, by and large, when scientists are doing stats on their data, they're aiming to determine whether the difference in the distribution is due to chance or not. And you know, this might be different for mathematical modeling paper, etc. It's not one size fits all. This is the source of a kind of the p-value that you'll see. And when somebody says something statistically significant, this is what they are um, looking at. So under a certain threshold, the results are, in theory, less likely to be due to chance. Don't take that minus 0.05 as gospel, though. I'll put a link in the description to show you kind of why p-values can be a bit misleading. You should always look at the distribution yourself and kind of try and decide do I think this trend is real? How, how robust is this? Don't just rely on their, their statistics because there are lots of flaws with that. So finally, once you're satisfied with whether they're answering their question, you can look at the discussion. And this is where you have your kind of narrative thread. How do the scientists feel about it? The discussion is useful for contextualizing the results. So you should look at the papers they actually cite there to kind of look at what else is happening in the field and kind of get, get a sense of how this affects the, uh, the broader scope of knowledge. Yeah, you did great. <laughs> Thank you. I was kind of going through like a whistle-stop tour of like everything and to try and do it in, in a, a good time. So hopefully that made sense. It did. That was really good. So let's kind of all bring this together. And I kind of, I don't know who put this in the, the outline, but it's a really good way to end the episode, which is the fact that people tend to say that paganism slash witchcraft is the path with homework. I've heard this being talked about many times, and it's recently made its rounds again. How do you feel about this statement? So I, I was the one who actually put it in the outline because I was just thinking about it because it annoys me. <laughs> I I get, I mean, part of the reason I made like a uh, sort of a day in my life video on YouTube was because people would ask me kind of like, they would automatically assume that I was doing everything by the book. And I'm like, no. Um, first of all, I don't got time for that. Second of all, like, I don't have the energy for that. Third of all, I have a life and I have to find a way to integrate it into my life. Like research is important, but like, you know, like I, you know, worshiped Aphrodite years before I became a Hellenic polytheist. And I, I don't think of that time as being any more cringy. I don't think of it as being wrong. You know, um, it was just a completely different perspective. And I found a different path that works better for me so in my mind it's just all that kind of what works better like again with my like Hecate videos people <laughs> are like yeah and I'm just, my ultimate thing that I wanted to show in that video kind of was that no one really owns 
revelation no one owns gnosis if people want to see hecate as a triple moon goddess like go ahead i don't care (laughs) you know if that's what resonates with you that's fine like historical context can be nice and i think there is something to be said about divorcing something from cultural and historical context but ultimately it's about what works right for you yeah, I think we were actually uh, talking about this in our, in our group chat a while ago as well, because I, I also dislike this definition. I think just predominantly the idea of, of homework is kind of juvenile in this weird way. And it kind of makes it feel like it's a chore rather than um, something which is sort of a genuine joy for a lot of people. And especially for some people who reading texts is a, you know, a literal divine act, that kind of research and revelation as a way of connecting more deeply to your faith. It might not be that way for you, but it's homework just sounds so... Um, trivializing, I guess. I mean, I do think research is very, very useful, and particularly for us as podcasters when we're assessing kind of weird and wacky claims. But I also think that you shouldn't let the need for an established precedent hold you back. Like, if you need to learn in a more experiential way, then that's that's essential and that's important. And so that you know, don't disregard the other side of the coin. Um, I do think as well, if if material or scientific claims are being made, then it can be very useful to ask for evidence because. A lot of the time, those they, those don't have a very, very strong foundation. So learning how to actually get to grips with those data can be very useful. That's a bit of a, a caveat to that. I don't like this <laughs> statement, but it's because I think when people refer to this as homework, they're, I don't consider research homework in the sense of like, it's something that I have to do, even though, even though it is. Like to create a ritual, there has to be a level of research and quote unquote homework. But to me, it's not something I do because I have to. It's essentially a devotional act of sorts. Like, this is not me doing it because I'm getting a slap on the wrist if I don't. It's more of a, in the efforts to get something, like, do something correctly because I want to be, like, respectful to the spirit that I'm calling, I'm going to make time to do the research to ensure I meet that goal, right? Like, it is a devotional act to do the research in order to approach a god, a deity, a subject, whatever, um, in a respectful manner. And so demeaning it to something like as homework, where I would do that like begrudgingly most of the time, like this is stupid, but I have to do it, especially math homework. Like just get me out of here. I don't That's really bad it. news for you about Pythagoras. <laughs> Pythagoras has enough philosophy in his math, but it's okay. Um, but I think like to demean it to that standard is just unnecessary and it takes away kind of the devotional act that research can have when you're doing it for spiritual purposes. We can let that be our wrap up, our final thoughts for the episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it, kind of hearing about how we maybe incorporate these things into our own practices, how we approach researching the different things scientifically and spiritually. If you have questions, you can always join our Discord. We are there and always happy to answer. And then there's plenty of other people there who are like-minded that are wonderful and will also answer your questions. And we have really wonderful debates about very philosophical topics. Um, But with that, we'll sign off. We'll see you next week, two weeks from now, two weeks from now. Until then, have fun. Have a good day, everyone.